Lehi's dream of the tree of life, as found in 1 Nephi 8, and Nephi's expansive vision that begins in 1 Nephi 11, tell a great story of all of the mortality moving its way towards the tree of life and what that represents. But to Lehi, this was a very personal dream, very personal in how it it uh, meant to his kids, to his grandkids, to the difference between the way Nephi looked at it and the way that Laman and Lemuel looked at it. Join us today in today's class as we search for the tree of life and for the fountain that ran close by that tree and the eternal significance that both have to our mortal journey. Welcome to the Hidden Treasures podcast, where we explore the rich doctrines of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Drawing on both inspired teachings and the latest research, we examine closely the revealed scriptures of the Restoration. Of course, opinions expressed here do not constitute official pronouncements of the Church or its leaders. These classes are recorded live and taught by Kevin Hinckley. Thank you for taking a moment to subscribe and leave us a comment. And now, on to today's class. Let's go ahead and begin. Um, I wanted to take just a second, sometimes in my uh, researching along here, um, where my clicker went. I noticed from, uh, from last week, um, we had talked about uh, the, the fun part of, if you're, if you're doing a close reading of First Nephi, you get to see a, a young man blossom into a prophet. And you get to see kind of immaturity sharpen into maturity as he, based on experience. And one of, those, one of those things that we were looking at uh, last time was the, the, the old standby, right? Uh, the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them, that they may accomplish the thing which he accomplished them. And, and young Nephi says, okay, you know, I'll go, I'll do, I'm going to get it done. And then what does he find out that what happens in the process of going and doing and dunning? <laughs> he just about got done. <laughs> he almost got done, yes. And sometimes what you find in that is, is a sense that maybe the going and doing and dunning isn't quite as linear as you might think. It's not a straight line. Sometimes it's harder. And sometimes you're expecting God to do things and he's actually expecting you to do things. So you're going to have to figure out, and he's, got to, and he's learning over time. Yeah. So Nephi had a testimony of this, and a lot of the Latter-day Saints have a testimony of this. But the Doctrine and Covenants... The Lord tells us that when he gives you a commandment and you can't do it because of other people's yeah, right. efforts, that he rescinds the commandment. And he, thinks, he, does, he acknowledges your efforts. He does. And, and so we've got... Um, I'm blocking his name. 
when I take people to Kirtland, we march over to the cemetery to look at Oliver Granger. Oliver Granger. I, the Lord, love Oliver Granger. And I give him an assignment. And when he fails, he says, and then, but his name will be had in remembrance among the saints. and among. So every time I take people to Kirtland and I, and I march them across there, I say, we're going to be part of fulfilling scripture because we're going to stand in front of the Oliver Granger headstone because we remember Oliver Granger. Um, so, yeah, exactly right. Well, listen, watch what happens. So, eight years later, we get a similar statement from Nephi. And eight years is a little tough time in the desert with Laban, with the bow, you know, with all that kind of stuff. Look at how this goes after eight years. And if it so be that the children of men keep the commandment of God, then what? Okay. He doth nourish them and strengthen them. Oh, that's a little caveat, right? And provide means whereby they can accomplish the thing he has commanded them. Uh, I'm, I'm aware uh, in, this, in uh, my, my new assignment of being with the young adults, and uh, a lot of them are on the kind of the Nephi zeal train. You know, if the Lord says, do it, do it. Well, just, I don't understand why. We'll just... Damn the torpedoes. Here we go. Let's go get it done. You know, and it's funny. If you've kind of been in the church a little longer, you kind of have this tendency. Um, Bishop, you can confirm this for me. You kind of say, well, let's just wait and see how this goes. <laughs> yeah. Let this thing kind of roll out a little bit and see if there isn't some other aspects of this. It's not as linear as they might think, right? Okay. Well, I think Nephi's learning that. Well, okay. We're going to keep the commandments, but the Lord's going to nurse. Why would the Lord need to nourish us and strengthen us? Because it doesn't go the way we thought it would. <laughs> it ends up being just a little bit tougher, or it's just different. You were expecting this and that turned out. And the Lord is going to take care of us that way. Yeah. Doesn't the Lord frequently extol the childlike faith? Yeah, he does. He does. Sure, and he and he loves that. That's why he's going to call the young. He calls Joseph Smith. You know, and Joseph Smith is like doing the best he can. You know, at the time when he's marching back and forth to the Hill Cumorah each year and stuff like that. And remember, just before Joseph comes, the the like four months before he actually gets the plates. Remember, Joseph is dragging his little self into the Smith home, and he goes, Mom, did I, I met the angel. She goes, how'd that go? I got the worst chastisement of my life. Uh, you know, it's like, come on, we're four months away. It's go time. <laughs> Knock it off. <laughs> okay, I will. You know, so he takes that zeal and he's going to mold it and he's going to shape it where it needs to go. And I think that certainly happened uh, with Nephi. Okay, now, as, as we're doing this, though, um, I want to back up just a little bit, because we're going to talk about uh, the, the tree of life today, and because there's so much cool stuff, and because this class is what it is, we get to spend a couple of weeks. We're not under any time pressure to have to get it done, dang it, by here, because the church manual is going on to the next class, by the next Weak, and so we got to keep moving. No, we don't. Um, I was talking to the CES 
director this last week. He says, no, so tell me about this adult class. And I says, well, we just, what do you teach? Oh, Book of Mormon. Oh, okay, using the manual. Well, not really. <laughs> we kind of go at the speed that we need to go. And, you know, if we have a great discussion about something, we don't get to some stuff, we just pick it up next week. And he's like, oh. <laughs> How great would that be? <laughs> you know, he's really jealous. Yeah. Okay, so um, if we take a step back, we're, so we're going to spend the next couple of weeks on uh, the Tree of Life. And, well, on the, dream, on, on the dream of Lehi and then the vision of Nephi. Uh, and, and there's some unique things, obviously, in both. But in the Book of Mormon, where do Laman and Lemuel first show up? Well, they show up in chapter 2. And when my father saw, as they're traveling, and this would be down by the, by, uh, the Gulf of Aqaba, uh, the, in by the Red Sea. Uh, when my father saw that the waters of the river emptied into the fountain of the Red Sea, he spake unto Lane. We're going to talk a lot about fountains. Saying... Oh, that thou mightest be like unto this river, continually running into the fountain of all righteousness. Okay? Now, anybody see anything wrong in that statement? You mean the running into? The running into what? A fountain. A fountain. You don't run into a fountain, don't you? You run out of a fountain. Well, that's bizarre. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, there is a sense here. And you go, well, that's the wrong direction. Okay. Now, with all due respect to uh, uh, St. Nibley, Hugh Nibley, uh, who explained that sometimes the, the fountain of the Red Sea was seen as the, the mother of waters and that th th that was a common language for the fountain of the Red Sea to be the sea and so the river is flowing into it. With all due respect to St. Nibley, um, the word fountain means a lot in the Hebrew world and actually as we're going to talk about in great detail today, this is exactly right. <laughs> This is a, he, Lehi got it right. And, and watch how this works. Okay? Now, it, so fountains, uh, for instance, this is at, uh, this is Caesarea Philippi. And uh, Caesarea Philippi had this, um, Wendy, I need to find my, my clicker. Because it has my pointy thing on it. And so far we haven't found it. It's somewhere around here. No, it's already, it's already hooked in here. Oh. There it is. There it is. Thank you. You're welcome. All I needed to do was have somebody look. That's how it goes. It worked. <laughs> now, now she's older and wiser than she was young. Okay. So th this is at Caesarea Philippi. And remember that the Savior is going to haul all of the disciples. This is on the west. It's on the east, northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. So they're going to go from like Capernaum, sail across. They've got to go up to get to Caesarea Philippi. And there was, 
There was a small temple to the god Pan that, that ran right along here. And the fountain is in here. And then it comes out here and it's a tributary down into the Sea of Galilee. Okay? And it's here where the Savior is going to do two things. He's going to give his sermon on uh, the river of living, he, he is the living water. And then at this place he's going to turn and say, who do men say that I am? Oh, well, thou art the Son of God. Great. Okay. So they go there, they do that, and then they go get back down to the, the sea, sail across back to Capernaum, and they never go back. <laughs> it's just fascinating that he would, he, there's a massive object lesson that occurs right at this fountain at Caesarea Philippi. Okay? But that, that's obviously a fountain, and the water flows away from it. Okay? Uh, or this one, anybody been to the uh, Redlands Temple in California? Okay. We have. Our daughter-in-law took her endowments out there. This is the fountain. And they are quick to point out to you at the Redlands Temple that this fountain is kind of unique because you have one stream of water flowing into three that then flows into 12 and then into the rest of the pool. Is that cool? Cool symbolism. Okay. One of those really nice features of the Redlands Temple. One into three into twelve. Okay. But again, a fountain is the headwaters. The fountain, the water starts here and then it flows downstream. So we still have this interesting conundrum of streams flowing up to the fountain. And you wonder. What exactly does that maybe Lehi got it wrong? Well, no, he didn't. So let's 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 talk about this. It actually has some. We're going to have to go back uh, to the uh, to the Garden of Eden, and we know from Genesis. Genesis says the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, the middle, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the river went, where? Out of Eden to water the garden. And from thence it parted and became four heads. So what would it take for a river to be able to flow down and out? What does that say about the tree of life and about the garden of Eden? It's on a hill. It's on a mountain, right? We talk about the mountain of the Lord's house. Well, the original mountain of the Lord's house was the garden of Eden. And we know that because, again, it's got a river that flows down and out. And the tree of life is at the center of that. Um, now, well, that, that, that's helpful in the fact that uh, when you start talking in antiquity about how much do they, how important are trees of life to different people all across all over the place. Well, trees of life are critical. Uh, this is in, in Egypt, okay? Uh, and the Babylonians had their sacred tree, okay? Uh, and and uh, obviously the uh, Baal uh, worshipers then started uh, using that Asherah tree as the for fertility rites and, and all that. Um, but this this sacred tree of life, 
It's on both sides of the old and new world. This is in uh, Palenque, the, the bottom part of the Yucatan, Chiapas. And this is the sarcophagus for Pakal. His little sarcophagus is right there. That's Pakal. That really is Pakal. He's there. He was the king. He died about eight, when he was about 83, something like that. He was the long king. Uh, there's a great story about Pakal. This top on Pakal's sarcophagus is fascinating. And it looks like that. I've got, a, I've got a copy of this in my office. If you ever come by my office, you walk in, I've got that right on the right. Okay, so, so here is... Here is Pakal, and he's, this is, he's died, okay? Long ago they tried to say he was in a spaceship, he's not. <laughs> this is Pakal, and right underneath him, this section right here is, uh, rep, uh, it is rep, a representation of Zabalba, which is uh, the Mayan, the Kisha Maya underworld, okay? And so you get to see, see a little face there, down there in the underworld trying to pull Pakal down into the underworld while he's making his trip through the underworld, okay? Up here on top, can you see the, the, the feathers and stuff like that? Anybody wanna know what that is? Any guesses? Quetzalcoatl, that's right. From the Quetzal bird, colorful flowers, and then Quetzal is serpent, it's the winged serpent god, Quetzalcoatl, up there waiting for him, okay? And then, what is this right here? <laughs> it's the tree of life, and it's springing from inside him, in a sense, coming across here. And in, uh, and in the Yucatan, it's the sacred saba tree. That's a, that's a saber tree, and you're not supposed to be touching or messing. Don't touch the saber tree. The saber tree is sacred, but also notice that it, it is very tall, and the branches come out at right angles. Okay, just like that. Okay, see it? That's the tree of life. Okay, so what happens for the Maya when the uh, conquistadores show up, and what is it that they're waving? A cross. And so the Maya went, oh, we, we know that thing. And, and not only that, the, the conquistadores are shiny, they're shiny people. And do they have like power coming from their hands? Yes, they do. Okay, so we're going to accept, oh, he said, here's these, here's this white shiny God with the cross, with the, you know, and, uh, and they'd believed that for hundreds of years. And so they were very recognition of somebody showing up with the tree of life as their symbol. So that, that's one of the things that got them conquered, is that they were too accepting, too believing. Okay? And it didn't matter whether it was Montezuma uh, up towards Mexico City, or whether it was the Kishamaya or whoever it was, uh, Zoltecs, all those guys, all had this, the, the tree of life was their center symbol. And the idea was is that this Saba tree held up the heavens. So in this mortality that we're here, the tree holds the heavens above us. But the roots 
And, and oh, I should have included a picture. The, the, the roots underneath the saba tree just kind of, sometimes they're out and they're down, stuff like that. They're really long, powerful root system. Very cool. But the idea is that the roots of the saba tree reach down in into Zabulba and kind of hold it in, in place. Okay? So trees of life are kind of important, right? All right. Well, that said then. So hold that in mind. So put that, pin that over here. You got that in your head? Okay. Now let's, let's now step forward. So, so we're going to bracket Lehi's vision of, of what he sees in 1 Nephi 8. Now, I understand that technically when we look at 1 Nephi 8 and the Tree of Life vision, we can put all kinds of, we can put us in there and people that we know and love. and It's like our whole, the plan of salvation is all wrapped up in 1 Nephi 8. Okay, got it. And it works at that level. It does. All the way across the board. Okay. Is that what Lehi was thinking? Oh, heck no. <laughs> Let, let me give you a quick idea of how Lehi saw this dream. That's the beautiful thing about allegories and symbols is that they work at so many different levels through already through different histories, right? So I want to look at today, I want to have you look at it through Lehi's eyes because he saw it in a very specific sort of way. And you get a hint of it. So here, here in his view of the vision, he's going to start off and he's going to say, Behold, I have dreamed a dream, or in other words, I've seen a vision. Okay. Now, his as, he, as he says to him, Behold, because of the thing that I have seen, I have reason to rejoice to the Lord because of Nephi and Sam, for I have reason to suppose that they and also many of their seed will be saved. There's a hint as to how Lehi sees this dream. What's Lehi's biggest takeaway, though, from this dream? He already knew that Nephi was in good place, okay? He was worried about Laman and Lemuel. Because of this dream, I'm worried about Laman and Lemuel. So I don't think he goes to bed happy that night. <laughs> you know, you go, oh, I saw this dream and oh man, I'm worried about Laman and Lemuel, okay? How worried is he? Well, it brackets it. Anytime that you're going to get something like this and there's something at the front and something at the back, what's going to happen in between is between these two bookends. What's on the other side of the bookend? And it came to pass that after my father had spoken all the words of his dream or vision, which, he, which were many, he said unto us, what? Because of these things which he saw in vision, he exceedingly feared for Laman and Lemuel. Yea, he feared lest they should be cast off from the presence of the Lord. The tree of life for him was about family and their seed. And specifically, Laman and Lemuel and their seed. Okay? So, just um, thinking, when you get to Second Nephi chapters 2 through 4, and Lehi's giving the patriarchal blessings. Right. Right. He doesn't say much about Nephi. And I think that's because Nephi's patriarchal blessing came from the angel. Could be. It's very possible. If you look at chapters 9 through 11 or whatever, whatever, whatever when, when the angel's instructing Nephi and he's laying out to him 
Isn't it though? And now this one that we're looking at right now seems to be Kyrie recounting the patriarchal blessing he received from the angel. Yeah. Outlining his posterity. And what would happen with his posterity? This is a this is a grandfather greatly worried about his grandkids and great grandkids down down the road. Okay? So He's going to say, I'm worried about them. Okay, why? Well, let me tell you about this thing. So the dream begins. For behold, methought I saw in my dream a dark and dreary wilderness. Okay. And it came to pass that I saw a man and he was dressed in a white robe. And he came and stood before me. Now, fascinating to me that we get this imagery twice. We're going to get it once from Lehi, and we're going to get it from Nephi. Nephi's is, and beheld, and I looked and beheld a man, and he was dressed in a white robe. Oh, we've, we've heard this story before. His has one more little element, though. And whether this was just true to Nephi, and it was also to Lehi, I think, I think it's true, because he's going to say, who was the man in the white robe? And we don't know for sure, but there's a nice little hint here. And the angel said unto me, Behold, one, that's one, behold one of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now, you go back, has Lehi had an experience with one of the twelve earlier in the book? Yes, he has. The, his very first vision, remember, he sees, he sees the sowed, the, the council of God's up there, and they come down, and then there are 12, and one of the 12 is going to do what? Gives him a book to read. And that's where he reads about all the stuff going on in Jerusalem. Okay? So, we, so one of the 12, now in this case, we're going to find out farther on that this, this person right here is actually going to be the guide for Nephi to see everything that's going to happen in the history of the world. And, and, the vi and, and we'll get into this more next week where he's going to say, and this person will actually write a history of these things. So that would narrow it down a lot to John. Now, is that the same one that Lehi see? I don't know. I have no idea. But it's just interesting that we're getting the same imagery there. Okay. Questions on that? Does that make sense? Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. After the lesson yesterday on Abraham, uh huh. The gas right. Right. Premortal people were pretty busy. Premortal people are pretty busy. They appear to be, you know, and even those in the spirit world seem like they're doing an awful lot of work. Moroni was kind of busy in the 1820s and 1830s. Uh, yeah. That, yeah, they're dropping in a lot. You know, we're all kind of we're all kind of the same program here. Okay, so the angel said to me, "Behold, okay, it's one of the twelve pot." Well, that's cool. All right, I saw a man. He's dressed in a white robe. He came and stood before me. He says, "Okay, follow me." Great. It came to pass that I, I followed him. Now life is good. If an angel's going to come and visit you, isn't that good times? And the angel says, "Follow me." Isn't that great? What would you expect 
I will go and do the things which the angel told me to do, so I'm going to go, and life is going to get much better, right? <laughs> what happens in this case? He follows the man in the shiny coat, and what happens? Well, things go south. <laughs> yeah, things, things go a little bit south, okay? So, but, yes, lady in the back. Thank you. So, so this is one of those times where we obey and it gets harder, but Nephi says he's going to ask you to do some things and it's going to be hard, but you're going to be nourished and strengthened during the, the process of that. Bishop, you were telling me that with the young adults you used to... I, I, I use that a lot. And, and as I read that section studied it, here we got... Here, what'd you have that to? We, we got an angel, an apostle or whoever, and he says, come follow me. All of a sudden, you end up in a bad spot. Yeah. And one day, I... And by the way, you say, I shouldn't end up in a bad spot because I followed you. That's right. It should get better. And, and as a why, I say, Bishop, I heard that a lot from why. I say, I'm doing everything right, and I'm in a bad spot. Yeah, right. And as I studied that, the conclusion I came to is that the Lord wanted to give Lehi that dream. But he wanted to test him one more time to make sure he's 100% ready to receive it. Yeah. And, and he passed the test in flying colors. And I'll bet you'll get to that in just a few minutes. I do. I do. So he's going to follow here. I'm going to in a dark and dreary waste. So now what's he going to do when he's in the dark and dreary waste after I follow the guy in the shiny coat? What does he start doing? Pray. For those of you following, he does what? Pray. He's going to start praying and he prays quick prayer. Lord, help me. I'm out. How long does he pray? Anybody following along? I know it's all up here. <laughs> it says many days. Doesn't it? Or is it many hours or many days? Many hours. Many hours. He's going to pray for many hours. This isn't necessarily resolving itself fast. After I followed the guy in the shiny coat. Which, by the way, might have been the shiny coat guy that baptized you. <laughs> you know? You got put in the water by a guy in, the, in white sea, and now, now that you're baptized and you're a member of the church, life gets better. Oh, heck no, it got dark, <laughs> and, and I had to pray a lot. Yeah? So, um, you say after, but he's still following. So, this is while we're following, and while we're praying for deliverance, we're still following. Do you think the guy's still there? I think he's still there. I think he is, too. And hold on to that idea, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. Yeah. Well, you read through the scripture, and he traveled for many hours of darkness. Yeah, he does. Yes. Now, the question... There's no mention of a time lag between the time he prayed and when his prayer was answered. Yeah, this is a struggle. This is, this is rough, okay? So he's going to get through all of this, and then, af so after the angel comes, oh, I did put it. I was smarter than I thought. <laughs> after I traveled for the space of many hours in darkness, and again, whether the, the guy was there or not, and I think he was, and I'll tell you why in a sec, I began to pray unto the Lord that he would have mercy on me according to the multitude of his tender mercies. Lord, I, f I followed. He was there. It was, I did it. Okay, I'm trying to do the right thing. Okay. And after I had prayed unto the Lord, now what happens? Boom. We get this large and spacious field. Ah. And later on we're going to be told as if it had been a world. It's, it's actually farther in the dream. A large and spacious field as if it had been a world. That's a tease. And it came to pass that then what does he see? 
a tree whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. Okay, so you see the journey, right? The journey is he's, he's in a wilderness and then he gets a white uh, guy, a shiny guy in a, guy in a white shiny coat. Then he's in a waste. So he's gone from a wilderness to a waste. And then he's going to go from a waste to a field. And there's a tree in the middle of the field. Because it's like it clears away and suddenly he actually finds he wasn't that far from the tree in the first place. We're going to find out that Nephi and Sam and Mom and those guys are all close. It's close. It's within shouting distance. You just need the darkness to go away. So they go from uh, wilderness to waste to field to tree. And I think the guy's still there. He doesn't mention him, but I think he's still there, and I'll show you why. So Nephi's expanded view of this is going to say, It came to pass that I beheld that rod of iron which my father had seen was the word of God, which led to what? Oh, oh. we call it the tree of life, but he says it was leading to fountain. a fountain. Isn't that interesting? Oh, it's leading. This, this could actually be the fountain of life dream. We call it the tree of life. But he's going to say, oh, no, it's leading to the fountain of living waters, which ain't the Red Sea. <laughs> Sorry, St. Nibley. Which led to the fountain of living waters or to the tree of life. So what is in the middle of that field? A fountain. a fountain and a tree. Where have we seen a fountain and a tree? The Garden of Eden. And the Temple video. Yes. <laughs> the, the, the te we saw it on the Temple slideshow. Just let me... Oh, the video one. Oh, yeah. Oh, was the yeah, it was the one, wasn't it, with with Joe Cool Satan? Okay. Um, which waters are a representation of? We're about to get. What are the what's that fountain of living waters? Oh, they're a representation of the love of God. And I also beheld that the tree of life was a representation of the love of God. Oh, so this gets, this gets better. So what is really going on in Lehi's dream of the fountain and the tree? Okay, so in, in Hebrew, Israelite way of looking at things, the Garden of Eden is on a mountain. There is the tree of life. There's a fountain. There's a spring. And that water flows down. In the Garden of Eden, it splits, Genesis says, into four parts, okay, and goes down and out, okay. And, and then, so, so they had that sense. So when they started building temples, Israelite temples, the whole idea of an Israelite temple would, would be a journey from the lone and dreary world the wilderness, the waste, to go back towards the, the tree of life. 
So that means you're going to journey, and they actually constructed the temple in such a way so that you would start out here, and I'll show you that in a second. And we're going to make our way past the water, and we're going to go back into this area because we're trying to get back to the tree, okay? Uh, and one representation of that, that menorah has oftentimes been seen as a stylized almond tree, okay? And here come the branches off of the menorah. Okay. But you're going to have to still get past what? To get to the Holy of Holies, to God's throne. What was on the curtain between the holy place and the Holy of Holies? Cherubim, angels, white guys in white shiny clothes. You got to get past those guys. Okay. Here, they're here in in the at the at the mouth so that there's a Hebrew legend, by the way, of, in, in the Mishnah of Eve walking back to the Garden of Eden and talking to the angels. And she's saying, Adam is really depressed. Can he come back? <laughs> and they go, no, sorry. He wants to come back and eat the tree of life. Okay? We don't know whether they were eating the tree of life before they left, but certainly... You're not going to eat it right after you've eaten the tree of knowledge and good and evil because if you did that, then what would happen? You're going to live forever in your sins. That's why Satan wanted them to eat the, tr the tree of life and live forever in their sins. And that's why the angels had to say, no, I know. We're not going to do that. So we're going to block the way. But eventually, after you've gone through mortality and after the Savior has wrought the atonement, now what's it time to do? You Come on back. Now you've fallen. Now let's unfallen you. And have you come back into the Garden of Eden and partake of the Tree of Life. Right. And that's where the priesthood comes in with the cherubim and the priesthood and the sword. Yeah, that's, what, that's why we have the, and we've talked about before, that there are actually several angels that you have to pass to get back into the temple. Now female also. Yes, and it could be, fe it could be a female angel. That's perfect, right? So one of them is the bishop angel. You got to get past the bishop angel. Then you got to get past the state president angel. And then you got to get past the recommend angel. Okay. Got to get past all those angels on your way back to partake of the fruit of the tree. Okay? All right. So let, let yeah. tells you to follow and then you go through this mist of darkness or whatever and it seems to me that I've always thought of the, the field of the world as being mortality Yeah. but now I'm starting to think that it's that mist of darkness that's mortality and that field and blinds you and you can't really see where you're going that field of the world is the entrance into the spirit world where you begin to see clearly but you can't change the desires of your heart that have been cultivated. How well you bore that adversity yeah. sets you up for where, whether or not you're going to be enticed by the large and spacious building or by the straight and narrow path to the tree of life. I think so. I, I, I think, and when you start to begin to see that, the, 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 the tree of life vision should change for you a little bit. You ought, to, you ought to see it against the backdrop of how Lehi actually saw his world 
and how ancient Israelites saw the world, but as Latter-day Saints with an incredible amount of restored knowledge, how we should be looking at this dream and what this dream is really about, for, for, first of all, for Lehi, then for us, but his concerns are actually our concerns. Does, does that make sense? Okay, so, so let, let, let's map this then. So we got this lone and dreary waste, okay, which I, I, last year I told you it, it just was shocking. Is one of those moments for me um, when when I took uh, last June the group of uh, and I'm doing it again this June but church history tour, and we got to we were on our way up to Adam on Diamond, and I thought we're just gonna go look at a field, you know, and so okay that. It's nice. I'm excited about that. It should be fun, but I wasn't taking it that seriously. Okay, uh, we just come from the Liberty Jail. Yeah, I mean, okay. So, so we we pull up in there to uh, past Spring Hill, come around Spring Hill, and we come at the, the top overlook down into Adam on Diamond, and and I'm joking all the way through here. I'm I'm, I'm on the bus. I spent most of the bus standing up on the microphone. Having a good time as we're going in there. I said, they says, how much, how, how much does the church own around here? I says, oh, church owns all this. They bought all this stuff up, okay? I says, see that grass over there? What grass is that? And they said, what? And I says, it's church grass. Oh. And the trees, you see the trees? What are those? Oh, those are church trees. Oh, nice. Okay, we're just having a ball, okay? We got up there, and I was not prepared for what I felt. Standing at that overlook, and the beautiful Adam on Diamond Valley just stretching out in front of us. And I, yeah, and I just went, <clears throat> and you just felt the power of this, of what was coming. And I was trying to picture, the, uh, uh, and, and before I could even start talking about the future of what would take place in that valley that we were now looking at. One of the sisters in our group stood there and she goes, it's the lone and dreary world. This is where Adam came after he left the garden. We went, wow, it is. It is the lone and dreary world. There it is. Not bad. This is not a bad place, but it is, but it is this world that in a sense is this dark and dreary waste. It's the lone and dreary world. And we're making our way through it. And then the idea of walking our way through the lone and dreary world is that we're then going to travel where? Whoops. We're going to ultimately get to this large and spacious field. We're trying to get back to partake of the fruit. Okay? And in this, coming from the tree of life is this river. And, and there it sits. Now, from a, from a ancient view of things and from a Lehi standpoint, here's what it is. There's the outer court or the inner court. There's the temple, the holy, and hol the holy place and the holy of holies and the court of the Gentiles. It's Solomon's temple. And, and Herod's temple. 
and it just and it lays out. And the idea is that they're going to come in through the, the court of the Gentiles into the inner court here where they're going to perform the, 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 the sacrifices and then they get to come into then the holy place where the tree of life is. Okay? And in this, in this place, you've still got to get past the angels. Well, isn't it interesting that both Nephi and Lehi had angels that were guiding them along the way to get to this point here? Okay? All right. So... The priesthood shows us the way, yeah. you know, but it also has its own checks and balances, you know, like the Temple Recommend Desk and all. But they show us the way. Yeah. And you can't really see the Temple from the dark and dreary. Oh, no, you can't, can you? So, so as you get closer, your, your vision expands. And what is the vision of? It's the tree of life, which is family, eternal family. It is, totally. It is. So, okay, before I go here, let, let, let me go one more here. So, I want you to picture for just a second, if somehow, go, going back, and, and we'll talk more next week about iron rods and all the, all the stuff that happens after Laman and Lemuel say no. All of that stuff doesn't show up until Laman and Lemuel say no. Other than that, it's an easy path. Okay? But I want you to picture for just a second, jumping ahead. So picture this river, okay? And we know, we're going to talk next week about the rod that runs along here on our way back up there. Picture a drone's eye view for just a second. And then have I got, have I got somebody got their scriptures available? I need somebody, find, find uh, Isaiah 2-2. Isaiah 2-2. But picture a drone's eye view. If we're, if we're somehow looking up over the top of uh, the tree of life and the fountain and the river and the rod, where would the people be? As you're looking from maybe 300 feet looking down. Where's the vast majority of the people? Well, there's a bunch over here in the large and spacious building, and we'll talk about that next week, what we think that is. But where are most of the people before they get there? Well, I don't know, but if it's our world, almost everybody's out in the large and spacious Yeah, they're hanging out there. <laughs> it's true. They don't know about the rock. That's true. But if we're actually looking at this part of the, of the picture, and there's the rod, there's the river, where are the people? They're making their way up the rod, right? Up the rod, up hill, okay, towards the tree. Now, some are then going to wander off into the waters. Some are going to, they're, they're, some aren't even going to grab hold of the rod. Some are just going to go straight for the building. But the vast majority at least start off on that path before they start wandering off. But we're looking at a large group of people coming up a single path, okay? So now we get to Isaiah 2.2, which is... And it shall come to pass in the last days at the mountain of the Lord's house. Okay, okay, you can see it. Mountains up there. Okay, and? Shall be established in the top of the mountains. Yep, there it is. 
and shall be exalted above the hills. Great. And all nations shall flow unto it. Uh, read the last verse again. And all nations shall flow unto it. Oh, what flows? <laughs> Water. Uphill. Uphill. And so, so we have the nations of the world, and they're doing what? They're flowing like water uphill, up the path, up the rod. So when, so when, Lame, when Lehi is worried about Laman, and he says, Oh, that you might be like unto this river, that would do what? Flow unto the fountain of righteousness. Could you stay on the path? <laughs> he hasn't had the dream yet. But you just get this sense of people flowing uphill like water. And then the, the living water comes down and feeds everybody. And we know in the last days, will there be water? I mean, right now, if you, if you go to Israel, you don't, uh, other than the Gahon Springs, uh, you know, and the Hezekiah Tunnel that you can go into, a little small stream. Is there going to be a lot more river coming out of, the uh, out from underneath the temple? Yeah. yeah they'll be flowing where? Down. Down. <laughs> From, yeah, and it will ultimately heal the Dead Sea, so much water, okay? But it's flowing from where? From the temple. From the, temple. the fountain of righteousness, you know, it's flowing down, and it gets deeper as it goes, and Ezekiel sees them, you know, and they're wading, and then it's up to their thighs, and then it's a, it gets deeper as it goes, a lot of water, okay? And, what are, and at the same time, what are the nations of the world doing? flowing up against that, okay? And they're flowing to the mountain of the Lord's house. Isn't that cool? Okay. Yeah. A couple of questions. When we looked over that area, it was huge. Over, over where? Adam on the island. Oh, yes. I, I pictured it as a, you know, it was a huge valley. Anyway, not to digress or go back to that too much, but is there a corollary there? You talk about the prophets, all the prophets meeting with Adam. Does that, I mean, they hold keys from different dispensations. Is there some similarities here? Or? Oh, I think so. Yeah, because at that moment, let, 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 let me take a step back just a sec. Um, when, we, when we get to, this is like, this is like next year stuff. <laughs> think about the moment, and we talked about it a couple of years ago, when, when, the Savior, when the Savior is visiting the Nephites and he comes down and he's getting ready to go and they go, oh, please don't stay, you know, hang around with this third Nephite 12. Okay, don't leave, don't leave, uh, 15. Don't leave, don't leave, don't, okay, I'll stay. I'll heal you. And then, I'm, and then what, what does he do? Then he pulls the kids close to him. So he's got the kids. So he's got kids, he's got Jesus, kids, angels, and adults. Can you see it? It's a three-part temple. Jesus at the center. He's got the most innocent, most righteous, the kids. Angels guarding things. And then the adults kind of in the outer court. <coughs> in other words, Jesus can create a temple wherever he goes. <laughs> And I think he could do it at Adam on Diamond as well. He's going to surround himself in that valley and suddenly make that into a temple where he can then preach. Yeah. Uh, the first time I was at Adam on Diamond, 
there was nothing there. And the missionaries assignment was to bring rocks and build the altar because the people kept taking the rocks away. Yeah. And so, but the next time I was there, they had the building. But my girlfriend and her husband, uh, I've had two who have built their missions there. And the one said that when you stood on the hill and talked, you could be heard down in the valley. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty great place, especially if you're standing on Preacher's Rock where Joseph Smith preached to everybody down there by uh, Lyman White's cabin, all that, yeah. yeah. But, but again, he can, create, he can create a temple wherever he wants, right? The acoustics were, were perfect for that. Interesting for them that they could hear. Yeah, and and and, and be heard. A mile away, they could hear the what what's being said. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Okay, so let's see. We got just a little bit left here. Okay, so at this point, then uh, for. As we're going to talk about a lot more next time, um, everything is easy until Laman and Lemuel say no. Primarily, who are the people in Lehi's dream flowing up to the temple? In Lehi's view, his family. It's mainly his family. Now, Nephi is going to get a vision and it'll expand it to the whole earth. But and and it's, this dream still works for us in terms of how we do things and how we hold on to the rod. And again, next time. But for, Le but for Lehi, this is his family struggling to get here. When, if, they, if Laman and Lemuel say yes, there's probably no rod, there's probably no mist, there's probably, I mean, they just, there's darkness, then he shouts, then they see it, then they eat, then they're happy. <laughs> okay, they just got sidetracked when we start disobeying. Okay, so the, the question that we get to ultimately then, uh, your desires. It came to pass, he says, I beheld a tree whose fruit was desirable for one thing, to make one happy. By the way, how did, how did Eve describe the fruit of, of uh, the knowledge of good and evil? Delicious. It was delicious and it, and it was desirable, she says, for food. That's how the Bible puts it. I think it was desirable to learn, to grow. It was desirable. I, I should partake. Living things have to eat living things to survive. If we eat rocks, we don't survive. If we eat plants, if we eat meat, living things have to consume things in order to live. Isn't that weird? So biologists could tell why that is, but living things have to consume living things to survive. So, all the way through here, the Savior's describing himself as the living bread, and he's the living waters, and you know. Alright, so, this fruit is desirable to make one happy. It came to pass that I did go forth and partake of the fruit, and, and I beheld it was most sweet above all that I'd ever tasted, and I beheld that the fruit thereof was white to exceed the whiteness I had ever seen. And I partook of the fruit, and it filled my soul with exceeding great joy. Therefore, I began to be desirous, what? 
then my family should partake of it also. For I knew that it was desirable above all other fruit. I know that on a regular basis when I'm talking to people whose kids have left the church, you know, and Cindy and I understand some of that. And I'm doing, I'm doing a pretty good song and dance about just love the snot out of those guys. Well, you just <laughs> love them, hold them close. Don't make their participation in the church a reason that you distance yourself or you keep sending them uh, articles and talks and stuff. Just love them and hold them close. And that is, that's, okay, I got it. But when, but we are desirous that they should be happy. And a lot of times they're happy in the things that they're doing, but they're not as happy, we think, as they could be. So, so we're kind of going against our desires that we want to see our grandkids being ordained and going on missions and they're not. And we're just, that's hard because we have at our core this desirousness that they're going to partake of the fruit and get partake of the happiness that we feel when we're partaking of all of that. All right, so I, 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 I get that, okay? Uh, the, one of the challenges, I think, as it was for Lehi, and I think it is for us, and it's maybe one of those things that comes from this dream. I've, al I've always loved this quote. In fact, I build a whole series of presentations for BYU Education Week on this quote. Joseph F., the education of our desires is one of far-reaching importance to our happiness in life. Then how does he describe that? Neil Maxwell had given a talk on this. I had to go find the rest of this talk to figure out where he was going with this. God's ways of educating our desires are, of course, the, always the most perfect. So what does he, how does he describe perfect? Everywhere in nature we are taught the, le the lessons of what? Patience and waiting. We want things a long time before we get them. In nature we have our seed time and harvest. Nature resists us, especially if you're growing in Texas. Nature resists us and keeps admonishing us to wait. Indeed, we are compelled to wait for the things that we desire most. Waiting sometimes is the hardest trial that we have, especially when we desire something and it's having to motivate us and move us forward. So to this, Neil Maxwell would add, The education of your desires includes developing a sense of history so that you will see nonsense for what it is. <laughs> okay. Yeah, right. The education of our desires includes developing a sense of history so you'll see nonsense for what it is. We may one day find that our desires are truly our own and cannot be wholly implanted from outside by anybody, even God, without dishonoring our individual moral agency. Therefore, your deepest desires will control your choices. 
And your choices will then control the consequences to be felt both in this life and the life to come. So ultimately this vision is about Lehi's desires. It's, what does he want? His whole family. His whole family. He's, in, he's in the family project. And he's worried about what's going to happen and what, what it will, the effect of Laman and Lemuel's disobedience, what that ultimately will mean for their kids and their great can, grandkids. And ultimately the story of the Book of Mormon is the conflict that came because First of all, Laman and Lemuel said no. Then the Nephites started saying no. So every time that everybody said yes, life was good. And when they started saying no, now we were back to mists of darkness and great and spacious buildings and all kinds of stuff. Otherwise, it's just pretty simple. But even then, we're going to have to have desires as we're making our way through that through those mists of darkness. And, and to the, to the multitudes, and keep following the guys in white shiny coats, I, th I think. So, all right, comments on any of this? I feel like I dumped the truck on you. Just as history has a value for us, beware of those who try to rewrite history. Everybody wants to rewrite history so it looks the way they want it, right? So that it points to a future the way they want it. Yeah. And to do that, we've got to then rewrite the history and eliminate the stuff we don't like. It's true. Yeah? I was just thinking of something you said a couple of years ago. Now, well, this is pretty pleasant. You said, anybody can be in this special team that wants to be. I thought, oh, I want to be there. And then I kind of went underneath it for layers. Um, yeah, and, and it requires a long transformation before you'd be comfortable there. The Lord loves people enough not to put them in places where they would be uncomfortable. Yeah. Years ago, I read a book by Larry Barkendall called Rescuing, actually it was Rescuing Wayward Children. I, mm -hmm. I would take that way. I would take the wayward out too, yes. Anyway, I in there he said that there's times when you can even talk to your family about the gospel, but if you try and live the best you can, that ministering angels, their ancestors all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will at some point influence them. Yeah. And I remember talking to Lana that worked at the bookstore years ago, and, and at that point they had sold like a hundred of those books. But it's a tremendous book about Love just love them. Eternity is a long time on both sides of the veil. And one of the, the things that I, have, that I have the hardest time, I guess, understanding these days is free agency. <laughs> the, the, the Book of Mormon talks about those that act and those that are acted upon. And I don't know anybody that's not acted upon. Yeah. By genetics, by environment, by uh, stuff in your DNA by what you hear, by what you feel, by what you read. Our free agency is going to really shine more after this life, after mortality, than it does here. It's, boy, it's a struggle here. We can't judge or condemn anybody here. Yeah. So in many ancient cultures, they had two classes of people. They had the sovereigns, and then they had the subjects. And there was usually in a nation only one sovereign, the king. Yeah. And then everybody else was subjects. 
And the Lord promises us that we can become kings and queens, priests and priestesses. And when we do, we become sovereign. And we are no longer to be acted upon. We are to act according to our love for the Lord. Right. And that's, that's where it comes. But, but there's a long walk <laughs> on both sides of the veil through the eternities to get from where we are here to there. And there's a rod to follow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think the Lord, <clears throat> as you kind of uh, <clears throat> were bringing out, that he will continue to try to educate our desires and our children's desires from as long as it takes. That's right. And I think a lot of times when I start to worry about my kids, um, I recently heard an, an idea that if we... Um, our children's lives are like a movie. We're, we're, we get to participate a little bit in that, but this is the, the movie of their lives. And if we were just to stop the movie right now, like if you stop a movie right in the middle of things are going bad, you would enjoy that movie, right? No. And it's still, we're still in that process of, of them trying to figure things out, and maybe some we're in a part of the movie, but it's not, it's kind of tense and sorrowful. It's not the end of the movie. No, and neither is the dream the end of the movie, by the way. If this dream continues on, does the Savior perform the atonement for those in the great and spacious building? Yes. Absolutely does. Now, ultimately it'd be their choice what they what they do with that. But he he's going to he's going to die for the people in the great and spacious building. Yeah. So in Doctrine and Covenants it talks about uh, people that go to the celestial kingdom and it says that everybody that would have embraced and accepted the gospel had they been permitted to tarry will go to the celestial kingdom well God isn't gonna just uh, decide what you would have done had you been permitted to tarry so how does he figure out who gets to go to the celestial kingdom have they been permitted to tarry the way he gets to figure that out is because after you die, you still have time, you still have agency, yep. and you yep. have until it's time for your judgment and resurrection to decide where you're going to go. And you're going to be making those decisions with clearer knowledge than you have here. Absolutely. So everybody gets to go as far as they would interest in you have the best summer school teacher who will not. That's right. Not my, my, my statement is that if I'm going to give Jesus a thousand years with somebody, my money's on him. <laughs> right? Yeah. What do we do with the scripture? This life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. I know. I know. That's, what, that's where Alma was. Boy, are we going to have a discussion when we get to that part. Uh, can, I, can I just suggest, though, that when you look at that, because that is one of, that's a problematic verse. And again, I don't want to get too far down that street. Remember, the spirit of Elijah wasn't here yet. There was no temple work going on yet. So to them, this life was, that was their understanding at the time. Okay. And I think there's far more understanding Joseph Smith organized the church with that understanding, and then he gets section 76, and then he gets 
you know, then he understands what Elijah's doing. I mean, there's a whole restoration that comes after that moment in time. And when we get to Alma, we'll have a great time with that. Yeah. So that verse answers itself if you think about it. Because it says, this life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. So normally we think this life is birth and mortality to death from mortality. But we know that there is preparation that occurs in the spirit world, which redefines this life yes. to mean birth and mortality to the resurrection. Abs keep on going. Yeah, d don't say... If I didn't join, in other words, and we used to be very literal about that and say, man, if we don't baptize them before we die, before they die, they're toast. And then at that point, we're not any better than a lot of the Protestant thing that says they're going to hell if you don't accept Jesus right now. And, and our understanding of the restoration, it goes so much more beyond that. But Alma didn't know any more really than that. He hadn't been taught. Okay? Yeah. I have read that middle paragraph about four times. Yeah. And uh, it has occurred to me that when you have these things happen, and you know my situation, when people leave love, leave the church, you're as hard as all that is. My challenge then was what choice I make. And yes. I have, and so, so you really have a, it may not seem fair, it may not be what you want, but that is what your challenge is. Uh, I have a family story. Jim says I tell too many stories, but I'm going to tell this one. When I joined the church at 23, all of my cousins, all of my aunts and uncles, my parents were totally against it. My mother sat on the front row of my baptism and wailed. She was so unhappy. <laughs> wow. Good people. Yeah. But very unhappy. And I have a cousin who's about seven or eight years younger who told me this story many years later. Several of my aunts and uncles and cousins were at her parents' home. She was young. And they were discussing my decision. And the art and the and it got a little heated, apparently. Everybody thought it wasn't a good idea, but it got a little heated, especially one of my cousin's husbands had lots of opinions. And her grandfather, my uncle, told his son-in-law to be quiet. He says, I respect her and I think she'll make the right choice for her. He stood up for me. And I found this out years later. So how I live as a person really reflects how others will think of me and what my, see, the consequences to be felt both in this life and the life to come. Yeah, and how we handle that. It's, it's ultimately, as it was for Lehi, it was about trying desperately to maintain a relationship. Okay, uh, we need to go ahead and wrap up here. This is great stuff. And I think we're at the heart of the gospel here. And, and both this dream and then Nephi's expanded vision of what this meant to the rest of the world, to Gentiles, to the tribes of Israel going forward is just rich. It's just so rich. And next week we'll go as far as we can. <laughs> and uh, I bury my testimony that the Lord intends to bless us and to <laughs> fill us with and, and inflame and build on the desires that we have to do the right thing. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.